0: Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Well, last time around I mentioned that we had added a new category of content to the Waking Up app called Life, where we're going to be covering a wider range of topics. Things like decision-making and leadership, wealth, parenting, and really anything else that relates to living a more fulfilling and meaningful life. And here I wanted to preview the new course we just launched with Oliver Berkman on time management titled Time Management for Mortals. I really think what Oliver is doing here is fantastic, and people are already loving this course over at Waking Up. So here, if you're a subscriber to Making Sense, you'll get the first eight lessons presented without break on this episode, and there are more lessons coming over at Waking Up. And now I give you Oliver Berkman. Enjoy. Welcome. Welcome. My name is Oliver Berkman, and I'm really happy to be working with Sam to bring you this course entitled Time Management for Mortals. It's something a little different, maybe, in that we won't be focusing here on meditation or even spirituality per se. In fact, you'd be forgiven for thinking that time management was the polar opposite of meditation or of spirituality, that it was a field concerned not with the deepest questions about human experience, but just the shallow stuff, how to crank through as many work tasks as possible when you might not even particularly want to do them in the first place, or how to save a few hours each week by cooking all your dinners in one big batch on Sundays. So my very first job is to convince you otherwise, to persuade you that time management isn't just about labeling your tasks with A, B, and C priorities, or batch cooking pasta sauce or such like. It's vastly more than that. Arguably, time management is all that life is. Here we are with this terrifyingly short lifespan of little more than 4,000 weeks on average. And the question of how to use this time wisely and well is the central challenge if we want to live lives of accomplishment and meaning, to connect deeply to the wonder the world has to offer, and to make the most of this utterly unlikely gift of getting some time on the planet as conscious creatures. So the lessons that follow are an attempt to combine certain essential philosophical and spiritual insights about time with a whole lot of concrete, usable, tactical tools for daily living. Because, of course, it's on that daily level of work, family, travel, housework, finances, morning routines, all the rest of it. It's on that level that the rubber meets the road. I trust you'll agree with me that virtually everyone struggles with time in one way or another. The most obvious manifestation of this these days is busyness, the sense of being overwhelmed by more things that you have to do than you actually can do. Distraction is another obvious one, this seemingly paradoxical situation that we don't want to spend our time on the things we want to spend our time on but would rather focus on something else anything else so that we never quite get around to what we claim to care about the most and then arising from all this there's also this ubiquitous subtler sense that somehow this portion of our lives right here isn't quite it that everything we're doing is for the purpose of some future time or that we're going to get our lives figured out soon that we'll get on top of things and we'll live as we want to live but that for now Many of our tasks are just things we have to get through, to get them out of the way, so that real life can begin sometime later. A lot of people have this feeling, as the English novelist Arnold Bennett put it, writing at the dawn of the modern busyness epidemic, that the years slip by and slip by and slip by, and that they have not yet been able to get their lives into proper working order. Now, the guiding principle of this course, and I certainly didn't make it up, it's a theme in the work of everyone from Seneca the Roman Stoic to the Zen master Dogen and the philosopher Martin Heidegger, it's that all of these versions of the feeling of being in a struggle against time arise from a core kind of mistake in how we think about time and how we relate to it. Now, I don't want to imply that this is all just a matter of switching your mindset. Certainly the situation is made worse by all kinds of cultural and economic pressures. So it's definitely not all your personal fault that you're so overwhelmed at work, for example, or that you can't resist glimpsing at social media. But changing our relationship to time into something more fulfilling and energizing, I think it does have to start with clearing up this fundamental issue. And what is this issue? Well, you could characterize it as an unwillingness to face the reality of our finitude. Let's talk briefly about finitude. I mentioned that we each only get about 4,000 weeks of life on average. Indeed, the whole of human civilization, since the ancient Sumerians of Mesopotamia, has unfolded over the span of only about 300,000 weeks. To think of this tiny portion of time, set against the duration of, say, the existence of the Earth itself, on almost any meaningful timescale, as the philosopher Thomas Nagel has written, we will all be dead any minute. And perhaps the key consequence of this finitude is that it makes our choices matter. When it comes to how we use our time, because we don't have an endless amount of it, something is always at stake. Every decision to spend a portion of time on one thing is a decision not to spend it on a million other things instead. And in a world of effectively infinite inputs, limitless emails and articles to read, limitless demands from the boss, limitless ambitions you might have for your career, or people to date, or places to visit, it's inevitable for a finite human that there will always be vastly more to do, and indeed vastly more that's really worth doing, than you will ever have time for. And that mismatch between what we can conceive of doing And what we can actually do is really painful. To make things worse, our finitude also means we have very little control over how our brief stretch of time unfolds. So, yes, you have to make choices and your choices matter, but you can't ever know what the future holds, whether your choices were the right ones or what's coming next down the pike. Instead, in each moment, we're just totally vulnerable to events. Anything could happen at any time and we can never achieve the authentic sense of security in our travels through time that we crave. Now, all of these are just the indisputable facts about being a finite human. But they're uncomfortable, and they're anxiety-inducing facts. And so what we do by default is to pursue strategies of emotional avoidance, to try to find ways not to have to feel that discomfort for example, we might tell ourselves, maybe subconsciously, that real life is going to begin when we finally graduate college, or when we get married, or when we have kids, or when we retire. And that's so that we don't have to face the anxiety of knowing that, in fact, right now, this is our only shot at life. That we need to do the things we care most about right now. Or if you're a so-called productivity geek, like I certainly was for many years, obsessed with every cool new time management hack, well, on some level, you're probably telling yourself that you're doing all this because you're en route to becoming so efficient, so optimized and self-disciplined that you will eventually be able to make time for everything that matters, that you'll achieve a kind of mastery of your time that means you won't have to face tough choices or risk the emotional vulnerability of never knowing if things are going to work out. As the psychotherapist Bruce Tift puts it, we will do a lot to avoid consciously participating in what it's like to feel claustrophobic, imprisoned, powerless, and constrained by reality. We seek ways of managing time that are not really focused on making the best of our little portion of it, but rather on making ourselves feel as if we don't only have a little portion of it, like actually we are limitless and omnipotent, or at least that we're going to become limitless and omnipotent just as soon as we can find the right time management techniques and the necessary reserves of self-discipline. As we'll see, none of this works because it fails to acknowledge our real situation. And if you've ever suspected that pursuing these sorts of productivity methods is actually making you busier, more scattered, and less fulfilled, I'm going to explain why you're completely right. And so a big part of the purpose of these lessons is just to get you to give up that impossible quest, to put down the heavy burden of attempting to escape your non-negotiable limitations. Or to put it a little differently, it's to point you towards the truth that there will always be too much to do, that none of us will ever enjoy certainty about the future, and that there is no moment of truth coming sometime later. When things will finally make sense and real life can begin at last. And that while recognizing this truth does involve a kind of a defeat, it's a liberating and empowering defeat. It's the kind of defeat that leads very quickly to much better things, to ending the struggle with time and to a life of more accomplishment, more success, more time spent on what matters most, and more joy wonder and focus. So, let's dive in. As the saying goes, and I think it's a deeper saying than we usually give it credit for, there's no time like the present. To start going deep into this question of how to manage your time as a finite human being, it makes sense to start with a modern problem that has reached epidemic proportions. I'm talking about busyness. Now, Busyness isn't our only time problem, and for some people it isn't really the essence of their struggle with time at all. It's entirely possible to feel that you don't have enough to do, that you're using up your limited time on insufficiently challenging or meaningful tasks. But busyness is a great place to begin this task of undoing the mistake we make in our relationship with time, to start dispelling the illusion that the path to peace of mind and to meaningful productivity lies in somehow mastering or dominating time, when in fact, the answer is to step more fully and wholeheartedly into our non-negotiable human limitations. Because what do we really mean when we complain about feeling busy these days, about the kind of busyness that leaves us feeling out of control or Resentful about the demands that the world makes on us or anxious that we're neglecting the truly meaningful stuff. It isn't just that we've got lots to do. You might be familiar with the Busy Town series of children's picture books by the American illustrator Richard Scarry, which depict a world full of cats, pigs, raccoons, and other animals who all work at different jobs in a thriving small town. They are busy. You know, they have plenty to do, their hours are filled up but it's very clear that they're happy as well, perhaps because there's just no sense of any lack of fit between the tasks they have to do and the time that they have to do them. This kind of busyness, where you have plenty to do and plenty of time to do it, that can be delightful. Our real problem isn't so much that we're busy as that we're overwhelmed. We have the feeling that there are more things we need to do than we can do in the available time. These are things we might tell ourselves we need to do in order to stay afloat financially, to meet our family obligations, or to realize our potential. Whatever is fueling it in each particular case, there's this fundamental mismatch between the amount of stuff that feels as though it matters, on one hand, and the amount of time and stamina that we have available to address it. In other words, this is a classic case of the human encounter with limitation. For a whole variety of reasons, we've come to feel that we must do more than we can, and we experience psychological pain in confronting that gap. And actually, a huge amount of mainstream productivity and time management advice, I would argue, along with all sorts of other ways that we instinctively try to get a grip on our time, is dedicated really to holding out the promise, to maintaining the promise that there is a way of bridging this gap. That if you could only become efficient enough, optimized and self-disciplined enough, if you could only find exactly the right set of productivity techniques, then you'd fit so much more into your time that this sense of mismatch would evaporate. You'd finally have time for everything that matters. This is a way of thinking about time that we've borrowed, essentially, from the Industrial Revolution, where it was a pretty good way to squeeze more output from machinery. And we've tended to just assume that it must work as well when it's applied to human fulfillment in the 21st century. Certainly through all my years, when I was a hardcore productivity geek, that's the feeling I was chasing. This idea that soon, through becoming more and more efficient and in control, I would reach a place where I was on top of everything, where I could feel like I was doing enough. And actually, because I had a lot of my sense of self-worth tied up in all of this, that I was justifying my existence on the planet. Well, if you've already listened to lesson one in this series, it won't come as a surprise to learn that this approach doesn't work. Efficiency is never going to be what gets you to peace of mind when it comes to time, simply because the supply of incoming things to do, tasks, obligations, goals, ambitions, is, functionally speaking, infinite. So fitting more of it in isn't going to get you any closer to the end of it. But that's not even the whole story here. Because what you find, what I certainly found, is that all else being equal, the pursuit of efficiency as a way to win the struggle with time will actually make you busier than before, more stressed than before, less focused on the things that matter to you the most. Partly, this is just a matter of quantity. If you get really efficient at, say, processing your email, the main thing you'll find is that you spend more of your time dealing with a greater volume of email. Because what happens is you reply more swiftly to other people's emails, and then they reply to those replies, and half the time you probably have to reply to their replies to your replies, and on and on and on. And meanwhile, you'll develop a reputation for being responsive on email, so more people will email you in the first place. It's like the old saying, has it? The reward for good time management is more work. Or if you're the person in your office who is far and away the fastest at handling a certain kind of project, well, don't be surprised when you're the one who gets all of those projects dumped on your desk. There's a close parallel here with the idea of induced demand, which refers to the way that you know cities add extra lanes to congested freeways in an effort to make the traffic flow more freely. And what often happens instead is that those extra lanes just incentivize more drivers to use that route so more cars flood the system and the congestion stays just as bad as it was. But there's another dimension to this pitfall that I'm calling the efficiency trap too, which is one not just of the quantity of tasks, but the quality. If you focus obsessively on trying to fit more and more in as a way to feel in control of your time, you're actually likely to end up spending more and more of your time on the least important things. That's partly because we tell ourselves that the really important things need our full focus. They need plenty of energy. And so we postpone them. We concentrate instead on clearing the decks. That is, you know, dealing with all the other little tasks that are tugging at our attention so that we can later get the time and the focus that we need for the important ones. Trouble, of course, is that the decks are never cleared because the incoming supply of things to fill them is basically infinite. So we never get round to the important stuff at all. Meanwhile, if you're convinced that you're en route to a time when you're going to be able to handle everything, then when any potential new use for your time arises, a new request from a coworker, some new potential business opportunity or social event or something, you're going to be much more likely to accept it unquestioningly and less motivated to ask whether it's truly a worthwhile use of your time. Because after all, aren't you someone who's on the way to finding a way to get everything done. So what does it matter to add one more thing to the list? So systematically, efficiency leads to us feeling busier and busier with less important things. To be clear, I'm not saying that efficiency has no role to play in using time well. If it currently takes you half an hour just to find the file you're supposed to be working on, or to find a clean pair of socks in the morning, then yes, There probably are some efficiency improvements you ought to be making in your life. And please don't let me dissuade you from making them. The point, instead, is that more efficiency and optimization can never be the main answer to feeling overwhelmed for the simple reason that we are finite creatures swimming in oceans of infinite possibility. So there'll always be too much to do. And that's why I think the really important skill to be developed here and we'll be looking at some concrete techniques for this in some of the lessons that follow, it's actually a kind of anti-skill. It's the ability to not do something. It's the willingness to not clear the decks, to be okay with the fact that there will always be a whole bunch of stuff on your to-do list that you're not doing at the moment, to know that there is all this other stuff you could meaningfully be doing, and yet to be willing to turn your attention for a few hours right now To something that genuinely matters to you. This anti skill is similar to the cast of mind that the poet John Keats famously called negative capability. It's the capacity to stay with one activity despite so many other things feeling unresolved, to be present with a project that matters to you or a person who matters to you, even though you know there are so many other things calling for your attention. Of course, few of us are in a position to just ignore our email or all those other little tasks that fill up the decks. You're still going to have to spend time on that stuff. But what you can do is to give up hope of ever getting to the end of all that stuff, of ever getting totally on top of it all, or of thinking that peace of mind lies at the time and the place when you will finally have got on top of it all. You can treat all that stuff instead as something that you dip into for a while on a regular basis with no particular expectation of completion. So, sure, maybe you need to give an hour or two hours to email each day. But if you can, put that time towards the end of your working day. And don't necessarily aim to reach inbox zero, just aim to spend the prescribed amount of time on that activity before stepping away. And if your energy is greatest at the start of the day, like mine is, well, use some of that time for the projects you care about the most even though you'll be doing so in the full knowledge that the decks are not clear. See what happens if you can approach life in this way to allow the anxiety that's going to arise from all those undone tasks being on the to-do list. And at the same time, to just spend a few hours anyway on something that feels truly important. There's a sort of surrender involved here, a giving up on something. But ultimately, what you're giving up is the attempt to escape the way that reality actually is. And when you drop down into reality instead, when you truly grasp that there is no chance ever of getting everything done, that's when you can finally get some purchase on reality and get stuck into making the best use of the time that you have. In the last session, we looked at the ubiquitous modern problem of overwhelm and why the standard response to it, which is trying to become ever more efficient, isn't going to lead you to peace of mind. That in fact, left unchecked, the pursuit of efficiency will end up draining your life of meaning. But to really grasp the shift of perspective that we're exploring here, I think it's important to see that this underlying mismatch between the infinite world of possibility and our all too finite time and capacities, it isn't confined to the world of emails, and work demands, and chores, and family duties, and so on. It's really more a basic condition of being alive in the modern world. Because the modern world provides us with, and just as importantly, informs us about, a truly inexhaustible supply of things that seem worth doing. Things that seem like they'd enable you to live a truly meaningful life. To really suck the marrow out of your limited time. So, There's an inexhaustible supply of experiences worth having, books worth reading, people worth getting to know. And it often seems like if we could only squeeze in a few more of them, then we would finally feel fulfilled at last. This morning, when I was out on a walk, I had the thought, seemingly from nowhere, that what I really needed, what would really enable me to feel like I was living fully, was a mountain bike. Well, maybe a mountain bike really would improve my life. I don't know. But I do know that once I obtain one, if I do that, there'll be a million other potential versions of that thought. What I really need in order to feel fulfilled is waiting in the wings to remind me of all the other things I'm not doing, the experiences I'm not having, the possessions I don't possess. We're in the territory here, obviously, of the fear of missing out. That very contemporary suspicion that other people are living more exciting and fulfilled lives than we are, that there's something different we ought to be doing with our time in order to maximise our potential or our happiness. The German social theorist Hartmut Rosa has made the interesting point that this feeling probably didn't afflict people in pre-modern times. Go back a few centuries and most people either believed in an afterlife, so there was less riding on making the most of this life, or they believed in some kind of cyclical picture of history, so they saw themselves as just playing their role in an endlessly repeating cosmic drama. Or alternatively, maybe it just never would have occurred to them that they had any right to expect anything other than to occupy the social or economic role in which they found themselves. By contrast, today we are ceaselessly attempting to get the most out of life, to seize the day, to somehow close the gap between our actual set of experiences and the available world of experiences. And then we're ceaselessly discovering that we can't do it. I think if you can get a small taste of an alternative way of seeing this, the shift from the fear of missing out to what I like to call the joy of missing out, that can be a kind of master key for using your time meaningfully and well. And to get there, I'm afraid I think we're going to have to begin with the incredibly unreadable and incredibly politically unpalatable German philosopher Martin Heidegger. Don't worry, I'm just going to pluck a couple of the most useful ideas from his work here. One of those is just to see the total extent to which we are defined by our finitude, by our capacity as we proceed through life only ever to choose one path at a time from a multiplicity Of possible paths. This is the realization that every decision to use a portion of our time in a certain way, an hour, a week, or a whole lifetime, it's by definition a decision not to use it in an infinity of other possible ways. And what this means is that any human life, even the most successful life you could possibly imagine, is inevitably a matter of constantly waving goodbye to possibilities. As I go through the day making hundreds of small choices, I'm building a life, yes, but at one and the same time, I'm closing off the possibility of countless other lives forever. And what Heidegger saw was that facing up to that fact, even just a little, taking responsibility for the situation for the fact that we're always making these choices, whether we like it or not, is incredibly daunting. It's anxiety-inducing. So we're always trying to find ways to evade taking responsibility instead, to avoid having to confront the fact of all these cuttings away of possibility. One way we do that is just to numb ourselves with distraction and busyness. Another is to convince ourselves that actually we don't have choices that in fact we do have. So we tell ourselves that we have no option but to pursue a given career or stay married to the person we married or no option to leave the city for the country or the other way around, that it's just the done thing and we have to go along. I also think the modern obsession with personal productivity can often be another way of avoiding responsibility for our choices, right? You get to dodge the responsibilities of finitude by convincing yourself that, in some sense, you're not finite, that you're going to be able to do everything, so that you won't have to make tough choices with your time. And you can probably see how the internet makes all this a lot worse, because it promises to help us make better use of our time, while simultaneously exposing us to vastly more potential uses for our time, and then, by the way, also offering the perfect source of distraction when it all gets too much and we want to shift our focus from the stress of making choices. So the very tool you're using to try to get the most out of life actually makes you feel as though you're missing out on even more of it. So for example, Facebook is a great way to stay informed about events you might like to attend, but it's also a guaranteed way to find out about more events you'd like to attend than anyone possibly could ever attend. Online dating, likewise, is a fantastic way to find people to date. But it's also pretty much a guaranteed way of being constantly reminded about all the other, potentially more alluring people you could be dating instead. So if you're somebody who is plagued by this fear of missing out, it can be surprisingly powerful just to understand that in fact, missing out is inevitable. It's baked into the human condition that we will miss out on almost everything. So that fearing missing out makes no real sense. It's like worrying that you might be unable to make two and two add up to five, when the truth is you don't need to worry about that because you're definitely not going to manage it. But we can go a step even further here, I think, and see that missing out isn't just unavoidable, It's arguably what makes things worth doing, what makes life worth living, what gives meaning to our experiences in the first place. Our finitude, the fact that we have to miss out on so much, is what gives weight to our choices. It's what means that something is at stake in how we choose to live our lives. Think about it. If you knew that your life would never end, then the answer to the question, should I do X or Y with my time today, would always be, who cares? doesn't matter, because there's always the next day, and the next day, and the one after that. In fact, why bother doing anything at all today in a situation like that? So the fact that you have to miss out isn't necessarily even something to regret. It's perhaps the thing that makes life juicy in the first place. I think one final way to help bring all this into focus is to see that there is something rather arrogant and entitled in the way we usually think about our finite time. We act as if it's a huge problem that we only get a short amount of time and that it's a kind of insult that it gets taken away from us by death. But when we say that our lives are short, short compared to what? Certainly short compared to the life of a hypothetical immortal being but it might make as much sense or even more sense to compare our lives not to a hypothetical immortal being, but to all the countless hypothetical people who never got to be born in the first place. And to see that from that perspective, it's not really cruel that our lives aren't longer. Rather, it's a staggering, stupendous bonus that we get any time on the planet as conscious creatures at all. And when you see things in this way, It starts to make more sense to think of all those inexhaustible experiences that the world has to offer, not as existing on some kind of endless to-do list, where if you don't make it through the list, you'll have missed out on life, but more like a different kind of list, a menu, a list of options you get to choose from. And that in that situation, having to choose, the necessity of choosing, it's not a terrible fate you've been sentenced to but rather a wonderful opportunity and a positive affirmation of whatever choices you do end up making. In this state of mind, you can certainly relish the peak experiences of your life more completely than before, but you can also find deep meaning in the other experiences too, in the chores and the duties and the myriad ways we just need to maintain our daily lives. You can embrace the fact that you're foregoing certain pleasures or certain theoretically rewarding experiences. Because whatever you've decided to do with your time instead today, to earn money to support your family, to write your novel to bathe your toddler, to pause on a hiking trail to watch a pale winter sun sink below the horizon at dusk, that's how you've chosen to spend a portion of time that you never had any right to expect. There's one specific skill that has to lie at the heart of any approach to time management that acknowledges the reality of our finitude. One tactic, arguably more crucial than any other, for unlocking accomplishment and a sense of fulfillment, for stepping off this anxiety-fueled treadmill where we're always trying to get on top of an infinite supply of things we could do with our time. That skill is deciding. In other words, developing the habit of making decisions, making more decisions throughout the day, throughout our lives. Now, deciding has acquired something of a bad reputation in recent years, thanks to the publicity surrounding the phenomenon of decision fatigue. That's the claim that making decisions depletes the ego in a way that makes it harder to make further decisions later on. This was supposedly why President Barack Obama wore only grey and blue suits so that he didn't need to use up his decision-making capacities on such trivial matters and could store it up for the truly consequential decisions that his role required of him. But for now, I just want to encourage you to put this idea of decision fatigue to one side, to suggest that unless you actually are the leader of a major nation, or the CEO of a giant corporation, or something like that, that it's Well worth experimenting with this idea that what you might need in your life isn't to make fewer decisions, but to make more of them. Or maybe I should say more conscious decisions. Because one ramification of the view we've been exploring in this series is that, well, there's a sense in which you're making decisions all the time, all through the day, whether you realize it or not. For a finite human being, whenever we spend a portion of time on anything, we are making a decision not to spend it on a million other things. Even more than that, in each of those moments, we're closing off countless whole alternative lives. Every step you take through your life, you're cutting away alternative life paths. That's actually the etymology of the word decide. It means cutting away, slicing off options. It's actually related to words like homicide and suicide. We are all in the position of the narrator of Robert Frost's legendary poem, The Road Not Taken, about choosing between two paths in a wood. Only, we can't know which path will be better. We won't even know at the end of the journey if the path we took was the better one. And if we just hang around at the fork in the path instead, unable or unwilling to make a decision, well, that's a decision too. It's a decision to use up part of our finite life doing that instead of selecting one of the paths. If you've listened to some of the other sessions in this series, it won't surprise you by now that generally, as humans, we really don't like this situation. That we tend to do all we possibly can not to consciously participate in what it feels like to be in this situation of being compelled to choose at every moment of our lives. Why? Well, because we don't want to acknowledge that we're missing out on all those unlived lives we don't want to have to sacrifice some options for other options. I would love to spend this current season of my life being both a truly engaged parent of a small child, and also spend six months every year on solitary meditation retreats in exotic locations. But my finitude, my inability to be in two places at once, means that I do just have to choose. And additionally, we don't want to experience the inevitable negative aspects of any path we do choose. You know, the, the difficulties that come with any relationship, the imperfections that must inevitably afflict any creative project that we bring into the world, and so on. So we, we hang back from making choices, partly to hang on to perfect fantasies that could only ever be damaged by making a choice and bringing them into reality. So what we do instead in an effort not to feel this discomfort of being limited is we try to cling on to the feeling of control by keeping our options open, by not consciously making decisions, by staying mired in indecision or procrastination or commitment phobia. It's no fun to be mired in indecision or procrastination or commitment phobia, but in a very important way, it does feel sort of comfortable because it cushions you from facing the facts. It gives you a deceptive sense of control over your time. After all, the very best way of staying in control of a screenplay you want to write one day, for example, the best way to hold on to the fantasy that it's going to be really easy to write, that you're going to produce a work of flawless genius, that Hollywood is going to fall at your feet in admiration, the best way to hold on to all of that is never to start it in the first place. Not to make any of the decisions that would cause it to enter reality. Likewise, the very best way to imagine that sometime soon you might be able to combine parenthood with six month meditation retreats each year is not to start in on either of those things just yet. As the philosopher Henri Bergson pointed out, that's why we love fantasizing about the future and hoping for the future, because in the future, multiple timelines for our lives can coexist all at the same time. In the real life of the present moment, we always have to choose only one of them. And that helps explain why getting into the habit of making decisions, exercising your decision-making muscle, is such a fantastic antidote, such a great counter to anxiety and to procrastination. Because when you make a decision consciously, You are owning the fact that you can't avoid making decisions. You're entering into reality more fully, and you stop dissipating your attention and your energy thinking about all the hypothetical options you might have implemented instead or you might like to implement at some point in the future. You surrender all your perfect fantasies of creative work or relationships or anything else, and what you get instead is a commitment to imperfect action in reality right now. Every time you make a decision, every time you consciously choose one path over another, you know, to write the first page of the screenplay in this way instead of the other million ways it could be written, to marry this person instead of waiting for a hypothetically better person to come along. Every time you do something like that, you are consciously participating in reality as it actually is. And the reason to do this isn't out of some intellectual principle that you always ought to acknowledge reality. It's also because it feels better. We keep our options open. We we hang back from deciding because we imagine we'll be happier that way. But it's clear from both experience and research that it doesn't work out like that. But in fact, people are generally much happier when they close other options down. The Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert and his colleagues once conducted an experiment in which people were allowed to select an art print from a variety of options. But then some of them were told that they had several weeks to change their minds and swap their print for another if they wanted to, while others were told that their decision had been final. And it was the people in the second group, those who had made a final decision, and who therefore weren't distracted by the thought that it might still be possible to make a different, better choice. It was that group, That enjoyed their new piece of art the most. This idea that burning your bridges, making hard-to-back-out-of decisions is more satisfying than keeping your options open, reflects an insight that's also embedded in a lot of cultural traditions, most obviously that of marriage. When two spouses agree to stay together for better or worse, as opposed to bolting as soon as the going gets tough, they're making an agreement that won't only help them weather the rough patches, but that also promises to make the good times more fulfilling too. Because having committed themselves to one finite course of action, they'll be much less likely to spend their time holding back from reality, pining for fantastical alternatives. It's also why very often it can be surprisingly freeing, surprisingly calming, to take actions that you'd been fearing or delaying maybe having a difficult conversation with a family member, or handing in your notice at work. Because when it's done, it's done. And now there's only one direction to travel, forwards into the consequences of your choice. None of this only applies to these big milestone decisions though, and and that's where the idea of training your decision-making muscle comes in. If you're procrastinating on an important project, or you feel stuck and stagnant in some area of your life at the moment why not challenge yourself this week to go looking for at least one hard to reverse decision in that area and to then make that decision it doesn't need to be a big decision it just needs to be one that's relatively hard to back out of and you need to not only make the decision in your mind but also take some kind of concrete action in the real world to lock it in so just for example Suppose you're launching a website. Maybe the decision will be something as minor as choosing between two content management platforms that you've been considering. Well, practice. Not waiting for more information or doing more research, but just putting a stake in the ground by deciding. Or maybe you're planning a vacation and you just can't make all the moving parts fit together. Well, just buy the plane tickets. Do anything, in other words, where the action that you take sets you off down one of the multiple paths you could have chosen. And after that, take another decision, and another, and another. When you get into the habit of making decisions like this, when you begin to really work that muscle, you might fear that what's going to happen is you're going to feel unpleasantly constrained by reality. As if you're giving up control, control you are hoping to maintain by not deciding, by hanging back from deciding. But the truth is that you were already deciding. We all always already are deciding. And that you already were constrained by reality. And that not deciding is just a decision too, and usually a suboptimal one. What actually happens as you develop this habit of more readily making decisions is that you find yourself more energized and motivated. You find your focus is enhanced and your mood is uplifted by the experience of being in conscious contact with reality as it actually is. You come to see that every decision is an instance of getting a purchase on reality, coming to grips with reality, and thereby building the most meaningful life and accomplishing the most significant things of which you're capable. There's probably no more cliched piece of time management advice at this point. Than that you shouldn't try to multitask. That multitasking is neither a good way to get more done, nor is it a good way to enjoy the experience of doing it. In fact, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche noticed the wearing and depleting nature of this approach as long ago as 1887. One thinks with a watch in one's hand, he wrote, even as one eats one's midday meal while reading the latest news of the stock market. One lives as if one always might miss out on something. Since if you're listening to this, you're almost certainly someone with some familiarity with meditation, you may also know, as a matter of your directly observed experience, not only that multitasking doesn't work, but that multitasking as we usually conceive of it isn't even really possible. But what's actually happening when you think you're doing two things at once is that you're switching your attention very rapidly between them with all the cognitive costs that that imposes in terms of recovering your focus on one task after interrupting it with the other. Now the answer, obviously, is to do one thing at a time instead. That's the key to being more productive in a meaningful sense, and to finding more absorption and pleasure in the experience of being productive too. And in a moment, we'll be exploring a couple of tactics for doing just that but in order to bring yourself to actually do one thing at a time, instead of just knowing that you ought to do one thing at a time, but then reverting to your usual behavior, I think it's really important to see what's going on here, to see why we feel so drawn to multitasking rather than to a single point of focus. And I'd suggest that we try to multitask either because we feel as if it's our only hope for getting through an unfeasible number of demands on our time, that the only way to make it through today's to-do list, in other words, is to become so efficient as to be able to do multiple things at once, or, alternatively, it's because it actually feels strangely freeing. Because keeping one's attention on a single thing feels boring and constraining and somehow claustrophobic, so that multitasking, by contrast, feels like breaking out of your shackles. In both cases, I think what's going on here is that we're using multitasking as a way to try to escape the pain of being finite. After all, what better way to try to resist the truth about your limited time than by pursuing a huge number of tasks or projects at once? That way, you get to feel as though you're keeping plenty of irons in the fire, making progress on all fronts taking care of business. Or to use another metaphor, it's like you're the air traffic controller of your life, or that you're even attaining a kind of God's eye view and God-like control over everything that's going on. But of course, as we've been exploring here, pursuing that feeling of limitlessness when the truth is that you're an intrinsically finite human, it might be a recipe for a short-term burst of consolation, but it's never going to work because it's out of step with reality. And so what generally ends up happening when we multitask isn't that we make progress on all fronts, but that we make progress on no fronts. Because each time any given project starts to feel difficult, or intimidating, or boring, you can just bounce off to one of the other ones instead. And so you get to preserve your feeling of being in control, But in fact, you never make it through the difficult parts of any of those projects, the difficult parts that are essential for actually completing them and accomplishing something. What you need to do instead, I'd argue, is to find ways of organizing your time and your work that exert a gentle pressure on yourself not to start in on a new task before having completed, or at least consciously decided to stop working on, the previous one. You need to acquire the discipline to work sequentially on one thing after another. That's an approach that embodies this understanding that as finite humans, we are always in any moment neglecting all sorts of important and urgent tasks. And that actually neglecting almost all of them at any one moment is the precondition of making progress on anything at all. So building a meaningful life requires finding ways to move forward with your current task or project in the knowledge that as you do so, other important things are inevitably being neglected. It involves learning to tolerate the anxiety that's involved in that situation, rather than trying fruitlessly to eradicate the anxiety by doing multiple things at once. My favorite concrete approach for implementing this outlook is to limit your work in progress. I'm borrowing the terminology here from the consultant and writer Jim Benson. The idea is to structure your work such that no matter how many hundreds of urgent tasks you might have in your metaphorical bucket labelled to-do, you take only a very limited number of them out of that bucket at any given point in order to work on them, and you make all the others wait in the bucket, no matter how much they might be screaming for your attention. So you're taking a radically sequential approach to your activities getting just a few things done and completed before moving on to the next ones. One way to implement this is on the level of the big projects in your life, the major undertakings that you have on your plate at the moment. Here I would suggest that you nominate just one main focal goal that you're currently trying to accomplish in each domain of life. In your work, assuming your work situation permits that, in your home life, in the realm of your physical fitness and so on, one goal in each domain to execute before moving on to the others. So you'd define an end point for that goal so that you know when you've achieved completion. That could be an outcome like finally submitting a report or finishing retiling the bathroom. Or it could be having successfully inculcated a habit. So like maybe you'll define success in going running three times a week as once you've done that for six consecutive weeks. The thing to know in advance about limiting your major focal projects in this way is that it's absolutely going to feel a bit unpleasant. You're almost certainly going to feel like you can't afford to let all the other goals wait. Maybe there's a second crucial work deadline that's hanging over you. Or maybe it's not just that the bathroom needed retiling, but the gutters on your roof need fixing too. And you're going to feel like you can't afford to put those other things on the back burner. But this is where you have to remember that, in fact, because of your finitude, a whole lot of really important things are always going to be on the back burner. Well, either that, or you're going to be pointlessly and unproductively flitting between everything on your list. So what we're talking about here is really an act of consciously putting things onto the back burner, which means, firstly, that you're likely to make better choices about what to focus on right now. And secondly, you're going to make faster and higher quality progress on what you choose to focus on, both because you won't constantly be interrupting yourself with other tasks and because you'll be psychologically willing to let all those other items on your list go just for a while and give yourself to the one you're focused on. The second way to implement this idea of limiting your work in progress is on the level of individual moment-to-moment tasks through the course of the day. Now, you might well want to tweak this to suit your own personal approach to handling tasks and to-dos. But one simple idea here is just to keep two to-do lists. You might think of one of these lists as the open list and the other as the closed list. The open list is for everything that's on your plate. You should feel totally free to add anything and everything to it. And as a result, if you're anything like me, it's going to be nightmarishly long. Fortunately, though, It's not your job to try to tackle that list directly. Instead, what you do is you feed tasks from the open list onto the closed list. And that's a list with a fixed number of entries on it. Let's say 10. I think if you were the perfect single tasking person, you'd have just one entry on this list. But let's be realistic here and choose 10. So the rule is you can't add a new task to that closed list until you've freed up one of the 10 slots by completing a task. By the way, you might also find it useful to have a third list where you put any tasks that are on hold while you're waiting for other people to get back to you. So yeah, sure, you're never going to get through all the tasks on your open list. But you were never going to do that in any case, because the supply of incoming to-dos is effectively infinite. So this way, By consciously limiting your work in progress to those 10 tasks, you will at least complete plenty of things that you genuinely care about, that you've made a conscious decision to move forward on. And what I believe you'll find if you implement either of these strategies, or some other version of them, is that you'll get to trade this feeling of having an impossible amount to do on any given day, and then making incredibly disappointing progress on anything really, You get to trade that for the acceptance that you're only going to get a small handful of things done on any given day, but then crucially, actually doing them. The short-term price you have to pay for this is that discomfort of knowing that there are so many undone tasks waiting on your to-do list, things that might genuinely matter, people you care about whose needs you're currently neglecting. But the long-term reward is that you'll soon end up spending much more of your time making more progress doing what matters most for yourself and for the people you really care about. There's an old parable about time management, an incredibly annoying and misleading parable, if you want my opinion, and it's one which anyone with an interest in productivity or systems for using their time well has almost certainly encountered before. It's the parable of the rocks in the jar. And the version with which I'm most familiar goes like this. A professor arrives in his classroom one day, carrying a large glass jar, several sizable rocks, some pebbles, and a heap of sand. And he sets a challenge to his students. Can they fit all these items into the jar? The students, who are apparently not very bright, try putting the sand or the pebbles in first, only to discover that once they've done that, the larger rocks won't fit. There's no longer any room. And so the professor, presumably with a smug expression on his face, proceeds to demonstrate the answer, which is to put the big rocks in first. Then you can add the pebbles and finally the sand, with the smaller items nestling comfortably in the gaps between the larger ones. The moral of this story, from the point of view of time management, if you hadn't already guessed, is that we have to make time for our big rocks, for our most important tasks, first and that if we do that, we'll be able to fit all the other stuff in too. Whereas if we don't first make time for our big rocks, we'll never fit most of them in at all. Now, there is a certain kind of limited wisdom in this story, but I described it as misleading and annoying because the professor's entire demonstration is rigged from the start and in a rather obvious way. He has brought into the classroom Only the quantity of rocks that he knows in advance can be made to fit into the jar. And yet, the deepest problem of time management, especially these days, isn't that we're bad at prioritising our big rocks over our smaller pebbles and our grains of sand. It's that there are just too many big rocks. There are too many things that feel like they really matter. If the professor acknowledging this situation had brought, say, six times as many big rocks to the class, He wouldn't have managed to fit most of them in no matter how carefully he'd arranged things. So there's an assumption baked deep into the parable of the rocks in the jar, which is that if you decide something really matters to you, there must be some way to find time for it. In other words, it neglects the fundamental principle of finitude we've been exploring in these sessions, which is that being finite in a world of infinite possibilities makes sacrifice inevitable. It makes it unavoidable that you'll end up neglecting a lot of things that would have been totally worthwhile uses for your time. And so the crucial question of time management becomes not how to find time for all the things that matter, but how do we decide what to neglect when neglecting at least some meaningful things is inevitable? And how do we make ourselves feel okay about that unavoidable situation? We're on the threshold here of a really deep and potentially transformative insight about what it really means to prioritize, to make decisions about what in our lives is most important to us. I'll tell you what prioritization usually gets taken to mean. Back in my days as a productivity obsessive, I was always experimenting with these supposedly clever new ways to prioritize my work, different ways of scheduling the day, of categorizing tasks by assigning A, B, and C statuses to all my different to dos, things like that. And although nominally this felt like a process of deciding which things mattered more than other things, the secret psychological agenda, when I look back on it now, was really quite clear. I wanted to find a cunning strategy for getting it all done, for fitting everything in all the rocks, all the pebbles, and all the sand. I might have thought I was making tough decisions about my time. But really, I was trying to find some way to avoid making tough decisions. The writer Elizabeth Gilbert has eloquently made a similar point in the context of getting better at saying no to things. You hear this piece of time management advice all the time that a central skill for constructing a meaningful and fulfilling life is learning to say no. But as Gilbert points out, we almost always secretly proceed as if this means learning to say no. Only to those things we never really wanted to do in the first place, things that were for us at most grains of sand or little pebbles. But no, Gilbert explains, it's much harder than that. You need to learn how to start saying no to things you do want to do with the recognition that you have only one life. It's not just a matter of getting rid of all the rubbish on your plate so you can focus on what's truly valuable, but of accepting the fact that you'll have to let go of some of what's truly valuable as well, so as to focus your finite time on doing a few things that really matter well. So let's consider a practical prioritization technique here, a method that really does take the finitude of time into account. There's a story attributed to Warren Buffett, though in fact there's reason to believe it doesn't originate with him. As with the Buddha, people have a tendency to attribute wise sayings to Buffett because they respect him for being wise. But anyway, in this story, Buffett's personal pilot asks him how he should prioritize his various goals in life, and Buffett offers the following advice. First, make a list of the 25 most important goals you want to accomplish in your time on the planet. Then rank them in descending order of importance from 1 to 25. Then take the top five goals on the list. Those are the ones you should focus your time and your energy on. But now here's the twist. Buffett's advice about the other 20 goals isn't to maybe turn to them now and again when you find yourself with a spare pocket of time. No, it's to avoid them like the plague. Because it's those mid-range goals that are the truly dangerous ones from a time management point of view. They're the ones that are sufficiently attractive to you that you'll be tempted to spend time on them, yet not in fact sufficiently important to you to justify their being a focus of your life. Now, I don't think you necessarily need to embrace this specific technique in order to appreciate the underlying point here, which is that in a world of far too many big rocks, it's the modestly appealing ones, the fairly interesting job opportunity, the semi-enjoyable friendship on which a finite life can come to grief. So it's really worth taking stock of your own life and looking for examples of these mid-range activities. Friendships that you sort of value, but that you're really just going through the motions with. Organizations you give your time to out of some vague sense that you probably should. Or even also just individual novels or TV shows that you're sticking with out of stubbornness when in fact it would be a better use of your time to walk away. When you understand a bit more clearly what these things are costing you, that they're inevitably stealing time from things that you know matter more, like pursuing your creative work, being with your children, pursuing a spiritual path, or anything else, well then it becomes a lot easier to gently let them go. And yet, just finally on this topic, it's important to stress that even though the Warren Buffett story encapsulates a way of thinking about time and prioritization that is much more reality-based and empowering than the tale of the rocks in the jar, there's still a risk of missing the point. A risk of thinking that if you could only weed all the semi-meaningful activities from your life, you could be certain of finding time to do all the truly meaningful ones. And yet it follows from everything we've been exploring here, that there's just no reason to assume that that's going to be the case. No reason to imagine that the set of things that might feel really important to you, which is effectively infinite, can be made to fit inside the time and the capacities you actually have. This is another situation, though, where if you can really get a taste for the hopelessness of the way things are, for how utterly unavoidable and inevitable the situation is, that's when you undergo a critical transformation. Because psychologically speaking, that's when you're free. That's when you get to stop struggling to do something that in fact was always impossible to do, making time for everything that feels like it matters. And you get to stop tying your sense of self-worth so tightly to doing more than any human being ever could do. And you get to give yourself permission instead To pour your finite time and energy and attention without guilt into a handful of things that really count, and then to let the rest go because you now understand that there's no conceivable pathway here that doesn't involve letting some things go. As the Zen teacher Mel Weitzman used to say, the trouble isn't that there's no way out of the situation. The trouble, the source of our suffering, is in thinking that there might be a way out. Let that go, and you can plunge deeply into your real life instead. In the end, of course, if we're truly going to take seriously the challenge of using our finite time well, we're going to have to talk about distraction. Now, We talk about distraction a lot already these days, for the obvious reason that so many people experience it as such a big obstacle in their lives yet there's still a sense in which we don't take distraction quite seriously enough. We don't tend to take on board the truth that our attention isn't just one of the tools we use to live our lives, but that in some sense, attention is your life. That your experience of being alive consists of nothing other than the sum of everything to which you pay attention. At the end of your life, looking back on it, whatever compelled your attention from moment to moment is simply what your life will have been. After all, there are many things whose very existence becomes a bit questionable if you don't pay attention to them. Do you really even have a given friendship if you never give it a moment's thought? Or for that matter, do you really have a problem if it never penetrates your awareness? And if attention is, in some sense, the very substance of which our lives are made, it follows, of course, that anything that takes that attention away Anything that distracts us from how we wanted to use our attention is taking pieces of our actual lives, so that whenever you pay attention to something, you really are paying with your life. That's why people have worried about distraction since at least the time of the ancient Greeks. And it's why I don't have much patience for the argument that you sometimes encounter today that goes, well, People used to worry that radio and TV were creating a crisis of distraction, so why should we worry about the internet? That might show that distraction is less new than we tend to think it is, but it doesn't show that it's less serious. From the perspective of our finite time, nothing could be much more serious. And of course the modern attention economy supercharges this situation, combining big data, real-time feedback, and advances in our psychological understanding to allow corporations to relentlessly push into your awareness precisely that content guaranteed to compel your attention, whether or not it makes you happy or contributes to any sense of meaning in your life. And perhaps the sneakiest part of the whole situation is that it isn't easy to spot when our attention is being misused in this way, because attention is the only tool we could ever use to notice the misuse. To quote T.S. Eliot, we are distracted from distraction by distraction. Once you've become distracted, it's really hard to summon the presence of mind to see that you've been distracted and thus to do something about it. Now, broadly, there are two things to be done about all of this. And one of them, which is reining in the attention economy by means of regulation and other political measures is beyond the scope of this series. But the other one is right at the heart of the territory we're exploring here, about our built-in human limitations and the efforts we go to in order not to feel constrained by them. And this starts with an uncomfortable but surely undeniable observation, which is that for all the complaining we do about distraction, we almost always give into it willingly. There's something in us That wants to be distracted. To illustrate this, let's consider a classic case of becoming distracted. Say you're sitting at your computer, working on something that really matters to your career, your studies, your creative calling. Now, hopefully, if you're a user of the Waking Up app, you haven't still got your phone set up to notify you of every new Twitter reply or every incoming email, yanking your focus away every five seconds. So you're not usually interrupted from the outside when you become distracted. You're not sitting there working rapturously, loving every moment of it when suddenly a source of distraction invades your attentional field and drags you away against your will. No, what usually happens instead is that first you begin to experience some kind of psychological discomfort with the work you're doing. Maybe it starts to feel boring, or you start to feel worried about whether you have the talent to complete it, or whether you can finish it on time. And then an urge arises to distract yourself from that discomfort, to go and see what's happening on social media, say, because that just feels much more pleasant than the emotions that had started to arise. So just to recap, because this is really quite alarming, but it's also the key to learning how to defend yourself against distraction. There's something in us that wants to be distracted. In that moment of emotional discomfort, we would rather turn our focus to something we don't really care about, which is what a distraction is, than keep it on something we do care about. It's often said that there's a war for our attention in the modern world. But if that's correct, we need to face the truth that much of the time, our role on the battlefield is that of a collaborator with the enemy. This whole situation might seem incredibly mysterious and perverse at first glance, but when you think about it in terms of our limited time and our limited control over our time and the lengths that we'll go to to avoid experiencing what that feels like, well then it starts to make a lot more sense. Because focusing your attention on anything that matters to you inevitably brings you into an encounter with your finitude you're obliged to surrender to certain facts about reality and to your limited control of reality. Maybe the project won't work out successfully. It'll certainly fall short of your perfectionistic fantasies about it. Maybe you'll miss a deadline and disappoint someone whose approval you crave. Maybe you'll experience some other kind of anxiety about the project or its outcomes. But to make progress on the things that matter to you, You just have to launch yourself off the precipice and into that reality anyway. No wonder it's more comfortable to hide out in distraction instead. I'll give two quick, commonplace examples of this from my own life. When I'm working on, say, a book chapter, and I want to make progress on it and do it as well as I can, I have to give up a certain godlike fantasy of being in command of the process. I have to accept that I'm just feeling my way that I'm going to have to do some effortful thinking, that my editor might not like what results, and that I've chosen to sacrifice other potential valuable ways of using that same time. Or suppose I have to have a potentially difficult conversation with my wife about something, the kind of conversation you need to have in a healthy and maturing marriage, but one that threatens to make me feel emotionally vulnerable, anxious, upset. Well, of course, in both those cases, distraction is going to seem rather attractive, and digital distraction in particular, because when you're online, it really does feel as if no limits apply as you scroll through infinite news feeds and scurry down any rabbit hole you like. You don't feel like you're constrained, imprisoned by reality. So what I'm getting at here is that the things we call distractions, like social media, aren't actually the root of our distraction. They're just the places that we go to in order to try to dull the pain of encountering our limitations. The reason it's hard to focus on a potentially difficult conversation with your spouse isn't because you're checking your phone surreptitiously beneath the dining table or something like that. What's really happening is that checking your phone surreptitiously beneath the dining table is the thing you do because it's uncomfortable to focus on the conversation with your spouse, or for that matter, to truly listen to what any other person has to say. When you think about distraction in this way, it starts to seem a lot clearer why our usual ways of dealing with it so often don't work very well. Obviously, it's a sensible idea to sometimes use web-blocking apps, say, to stop yourself succumbing to the temptation to check your newsfeed, or to set up personal rules for yourself about when you'll permit yourself to access certain sources of distraction. But we shouldn't expect that kind of intervention to deal with our distraction problems in any decisive way. Because of course, all they're doing is temporarily or permanently removing our access to some of the most appealing places we go when we experience the discomfort of focusing on what matters. They're not addressing that experience of discomfort itself. So if that's all you do to try to combat distraction, shutting off the places that you go when you want to distract yourself, well, don't be surprised when you just end up finding some alternative way to escape the discomfort instead. If you block your access to social media, don't be surprised when you find yourself suddenly much more interested in reading certain blogs. Or if you shut off the Wi-Fi altogether, well, don't be surprised to find yourself cleaning the kitchen yet again when it doesn't really need cleaning, you'll find some other way to escape the experience of discomfort. So if blocking distractions in that way isn't the whole solution, what is the solution? Well, I'm just going to be honest here and say that I don't think there is one. That the discomfort of giving ourselves over to meaningful activities, that's just part of what it feels like to be a finite human seeking to live a meaningful life. Only there is a sense in which confronting this lack of a solution is the solution. Because if you can accept that this discomfort is in some sense inevitable, it becomes much more feasible to resist distractions. lure. You can simply recognize the discomfort as it arises, understand why it's arising, allow it to be present, decline to let it dictate your behavior and lure you off onto social media or wherever, and instead just keep on going with the work you decided to focus on. This is what the writer Cal Newport is talking about, I think, when he describes what some people call writer's block as just a major part of how it feels to be a writer. Writing is hard, it feels hard, and the problem here isn't the feeling of difficulty, but rather the struggle to escape. The feeling of difficulty. And when you enter into this mindset, when you can learn to expect and to hang out with the discomfort that often arises in doing meaningful things, you swiftly learn that it doesn't kill you. Indeed, you can often find a kind of nourishment in it, a meta pleasure, a sense of enjoying engaging with the difficulty, in the same way that rock climbing or weightlifting are only enjoyable because they're difficult. So you don't need to set up your environment for a perfect absence of distraction, which is lucky, because few of us really have that option. Nor do you need to train yourself to become completely immune to any threats to your focus, which is lucky too, because that level of extreme unbroken focus is probably impossible to attain. Instead, you just need to gently kindle in yourself over and over again a willingness to feel some of the discomfort when it arises, to let it be there and to pass away when it's ready to pass away, and meanwhile, to make one single step forward into the next moment of effort, and the next, and the next, and the next. Welcome back to this series on time management for mortals. I want to draw your attention now to a completely crucial yet underappreciated fact about time, which is that we never really have any of it at all. I've been speaking in these sessions so far as if we only have a tiny amount of time, barely more than 4,000 weeks in a life, even if you're lucky. And there's a sense in which that's precisely true. But there's another sense in which it isn't, because we don't have time. We don't possess it. In the way that we might possess an item of clothing or a sum of money. As the writer David Kane points out, when we say or imagine that we have, for example, two hours to finish cleaning out the garage, what we mean is that we can reasonably expect to get two hours to clean out the garage. But all that is ever in our possession or control at any moment, if any time is ever in our possession or control, is just this single. Present moment. It's as Martin Heidegger said, we always just find ourselves here, in this very moment, thrown into the flow of time, with all our past moments behind us and all potential future ones beyond our reach. And what this means when you reflect upon it a bit is that we are all of us, always, completely vulnerable to events. Anything at all could happen to us or to those we love at any moment. Of course, many things are very unlikely to happen. A grand piano probably won't fall onto your head from an upper-story window when you step out of a tall building tomorrow afternoon. But in an important sense, your capacity to know that that won't happen is zero. And while different people definitely have different amounts of resources for coping with what happens when it happens, in the end, the President of the United States has no more grounds to feel certain about what even the near future holds than does a refugee fleeing a war zone, living by their wits alone. If you're a parent, you might remember the time you first realised the terrifying vulnerability that comes with having someone you love more than anything else just out there in the world, beyond your capacity to absolutely guarantee his or her safety. But this feeling is just an intense and very noticeable version of the vulnerability that afflicts all of us all the time, and which is arguably one of the most painful consequences of our human finitude. It's not just that our time is so short, but that living it means clinging on to our little life raft on the whitewater rapids of the present moment and never knowing what's coming next. And this situation has very concrete consequences when it comes to making the best use of our time Because the assumption that time is something we can possess or control is the unspoken premise of almost all of our planning activity, our goal setting, and indeed our worrying. The desire to feel reassured about the future accounts for a huge part of the agitation we feel when we're overwhelmed. We get anxious wondering, will we be able to get through the to-do list by the end of the day? And it's the same when we fret about the course our lives are taking. We want to know that our choices taken now will prove to have been the right ones in future. In fact, you could define worry as the repetitious experience of a mind attempting to generate a feeling of security about the future, failing, and then trying again and again and again, as if the very act of worrying might somehow forestall disaster. Whenever you're caught up in worry like this, You want to feel confident here and now that in future your partner won't leave you or you'll have enough money to retire on or your favoured candidate will win the election. And yet, of course, this is an unwinnable struggle because the future just isn't the sort of thing that can provide this reassurance for the simple reason that it hasn't happened yet. I should say I'm speaking from experience here as the sun of a family of compulsive planners. People who'd happily build in four hours to make a one-hour trip to the airport, because after all, who knows what might happen? But in fact, who knows what might happen is exactly why this mental posture will never bring peace of mind, because no matter how many hours you build in to your trip, you can never be completely sure that something won't get in the way. And even if you leave an absurd number of hours, eight or ten, say, well, you still don't find peace of mind that way either because there's always the next part of the future to be worrying about. What if the plane's delayed and so you miss your onward train at your destination? And so on and so on and so on. There's always more of the future and so there's always more reassurance that you feel you need to see. And there's a huge irony in this fixation we have on trying to control the future, which is that it's almost always true for almost everybody that the things we value most deeply in life didn't come from successfully exercising control over our unfolding lives. Think about something or someone you truly value in life. Maybe you're madly in love with your spouse, or you love your work, or a particular hobby. Maybe it's just a local bar that you love to visit. And then reflect on the sequence of events that led to that person or thing being in your life. You'll almost always find they were centered around factors that were beyond your control. Maybe you got some chance invitation to a party where you happened to meet your soulmate. Maybe your parents moved to the neighborhood near the school with the teacher who encouraged your hidden talents and ended up making you who you are today. In other words, you didn't actually need the control you thought you needed. And frankly, if you had had that control, you might well have missed out on those wonderful things instead. So, I'm leading up here to a radical suggestion about the role of planning in meaningful time management. But the suggestion is not that you should just abandon planning. It's not that because you can't control the future, you might as well just stumble directionlessly through life or attempt to be completely spontaneous all the time. No, it's to radically rethink what a plan actually is. And what a plan is, As Joseph Goldstein says, it's just a thought. It's a present moment statement of your intentions. It exists entirely here, now, in your awareness in the present. And while it might be really useful in helping guide your choice of present moment actions, what it isn't is some kind of conceptual lasso thrown around the future from your vantage point in the present in order to try to bring that future under your control. So, by all means, use planning techniques like time boxing or the Pomodoro technique to organize your day. By all means, draw up monthly objectives or three year plans and vision statements. But consider holding all these things lightly. Understand them to be what they are, which is concepts that exist now and that won't ever bring you any kind of reassurance about what the future will bring. The ultimate challenge in time management is always just to make a wise choice about this moment this very moment the only one you get this mental posture tends to be a much more effective way to accomplish meaningful things because lightly held plans allow you to move nimbly through the world adapting to changing circumstances bending rather than breaking when nasty surprises occur but it's also vastly preferable in terms of peace of mind, because you no longer have to live with this constant anxious worry about whether or not the future is going to comply with your desires for it. This doesn't mean you shouldn't use your present moments to build things that you'd like to see come to fruition in the future, but that's subtly and critically different from trying to use the present to force the future to go your preferred way. The spiritual teacher Jiddu Krishnamurti summed this all up when he said that the secret of his peace of mind was, and I quote, that I don't mind what happens. I don't think Krishnamurti meant that we shouldn't care when bad or unjust things happen to ourselves or others, nor do I think he meant that we should stop trying to make the future better than the present. Instead, I think he was pointing to the profound sense of liberation that comes from living life without this constant inner demand to know whether the future is going to conform to your desires for it. Because that very commonplace attitude means you're always on edge as you wait to discover how things will unfold. Now, of course, we all want the future to contain more good experiences and fewer bad ones, but there's simply no need to live with this grasping, worried stance toward a time over which, in fact, you have no control. Even if the future does go your way, you might not be happier as a result. Instead, you can just step lightly into each new moment, curious about what's coming next, and not minding if it wasn't exactly what you expected.